0: A long time ago, my uh, Shams' uh, mother told her a story, whether it involved somebody who was uh, a distant relative with the family or some acquaintance, I don't know, but it was some connection like that. And this was a young man who was engaged to be married, and the day of his wedding came, and he took his uh, place at the front, and the bride, just heavily veiled, just walked her way down the aisle, and when he finally got next to her he turned and was close enough to see her through the veil and to his utter shock it wasn't her it was someone much less attractive than her what do you do when you find yourself in this this actually happened what do you do when you find yourself in a situation like that this man was unbelievably resourceful he said to the priest i need to go to the washroom for a minute and that was the last they saw of him <laughs> but do you know that something like that actually happened in this, in the bible in the early chapters of the Bible, which is a story of Abraham, who all of the three major monotheistic religions of, of this world, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, trace their origins to, uh, the early chapters of the Bible a story of Abraham's son Isaac and his son Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons from whom the people of Israel came, that which formed the backbone of the Old Testament. Well, Jacob, um, Abraham's grandson, through circumstances that don't interest us this morning, uh, Leaves his home, which, is, which was in Canaan, approximately modern day Israel, and makes his way to his uh, uncle's place, mother's brother's home, uh, from where Abraham came, very roughly corresponding to modern day Iraq. And this is what happens there. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, so the weakness of the eyes had nothing to do with eyesight. It's the Hebrew's most likely a way of saying that she wasn't all that good looking. <coughs> Uh, But Jacob loved Rachel, not surprisingly, right? Men are no different then than they are today. (laughs) And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. That has to be the most ironical verse in the whole Bible, right? <laughs> then came morning and day was Leah when I was expecting Rachel. Now, in the country that I grew up in, fathers seldom gave permission for younger daughters to be married until the oldest daughter got married in the family. Otherwise, there'd be all kinds of rumors that would be circulating as to why she wasn't married. This was probably Laban's motivation. But just imagine poor Jacob. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination for us to experience, even to a little bit, the sense of horror if this were true. But listen, here's the rub. Here's the rub. Every one of us who's married think we were marrying Rachel and it turns out to be Leah. (laughs) Not because he or she is uglier or less handsome than we thought. They're the same person that way. But they are not the person that we were gearing up to spend the rest of our life with. And when this happens, when this happens, when we discover this, our usual reaction is resentment and we try to change the person into what we had hoped or thought they were going to be. But the problem is the fault is not our spouses. Our problem is not wrong spouses, but a completely wrong view of marriage. That's the central issue that we want to look at. 85% of people, the surveys have shown, think that Happiness and joy comes from finding your perfect soulmate and then living forever after with them. This this, this romantic notion, Gary Thomas in his book uh, Sacred Marriage, traces to the origins of right to the beginning, not until about the 11th century, and reaching its peak during the 18th century romantic movement. And so we desperately need to change our view of what marriage really is. That's what I want to talk about today. In the second message in this series. Now you have to remember one thing. I have one message. That's all. That's oodles of things about marriage. I can't even go into today. Not about parenting. Not about conflict management. Not about divorce. Remarriage. uh, You know. Spouses living together as roommates. We don't have time to cover any of that. We have provided links to nine other sermons on marriage that I preached at various times. As well as three or four of the books that I have found the most helpful in my own marriage. So my hope is that you will amplify what, you, what we're talking about today with all of those things as you see fit and as you experience need. What I'm going to do today is to lay the foundations, the building blocks, what we absolutely have to know. All those other things are important and we've finished all of them. We've got to come back to this. I want to do today for marriage what I did for singlehood last week. This traces development in the scriptures and, have, and build, present to you, if you will, four foundational building blocks that form a biblical view of marriage and for those of us who are married we need recorrection recalibration for those of you who aren't avoid that problem by getting your calibration right right now so listen carefully i want to begin again with the creation For god created man which is a generic term for human beings in his image in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. Now, modern day critics will read subdue and dominion and blame Genesis for the environmental collapse that we have. This is not a mandate for creating environmental chaos and raping the environment. What is it Well, in the ancient Near East, especially in Canaan, which was the context as far as the Bible was concerned, that country was made up of many, many little city-states, and there were kings of each of these places, and those kings fought with each other. And when one king was victorious over another city-state, it was customary for him to leave a statue of himself in that newly conquered place as a visible reminder to these people who their new king really was, because the king himself went back to his own city-state. Moses is most likely drawing upon that understanding of in the ancient Near East, to drive home another point that when God created Adam and Eve, he created that first couple, they were his visible representation on earth of who the real king was, who was invisible. And subduing and dominion are words that don't involve destruction, rather they carry the idea of using the unique faculties that these people had as being created in the image of God, To study creation and then to use that knowledge to harness creation for the benefit of humanity and for the glory of God. They were vice regents working on behalf of the real king. In such a way as to bless his creation and bring glory to him. It's what theologians call the cultural mandate. This was the essence of what it meant uh, to be commissioned like this, to be created in the image of God. There were other dimensions of it, but this was probably the dominant idea. So when God created human beings, when he created the first human beings, and which Genesis 2 tells us of the marriage relationship, he puts it fairly and squarely in the context of a mission. As husband and wife, they would accomplish this mission of understanding creation, using that knowledge to harness creation for the benefit of humanity and for the glory of God. So overarching, undergirding and surrounding marriage is this first central idea that it is mission-centered. God put them on earth with work to do. Now that required something else. So the second chapter of Genesis, which is the retake on the creation story, but amplifies the whole issue of creation as far as the human beings were concerned, which is all dismissed in one sentence in chapter one of Genesis. Male and female, he created them. Chapter two amplifies that story for us. And here's the heart of that. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them, And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. But for Adam was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on man on the man. And while he slept he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said... This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. Several things about this that help us to understand the second building block, which is essential for mission to be accomplished. First of all, let's look at Adam's assignment to name the animals. Naming, as I've mentioned to you often in the Bible, is not like us choosing names for our children and whatnot. We do it more out of whims of wanting to have different spellings for our kids' names and whatnot. Naming in, in the Bible involved understanding character, destiny, hopes for the future, and things like that. So when Adam was given an assignment to name the animals, he was already beginning his first expression of his vice regency. He was beginning to exercise that dominion. This was part of ruling and subduing. And so he reflected upon them. He had to reflect upon each creature before that name was given. That was the first importance and significance of the assignment. But there was another purpose that the scriptures tell us. This exercise involved a lot of time probably, a lot of looking, a lot of reflecting, and something else began to happen to Adam. And he realized, there's nobody for me here. This is all wonderful, but it's very different than me. And so there was awakened within him a sense of aloneness. So that was the second purpose for this assignment. And so God puts him to sleep. The story in Eve is created and he awakens. In this case, then came morning and there was Rachel. I mean, he just was utterly excited. We lose the impact in the Hebrew, in the English translations in our Bible, because in the Hebrew, this is poetry. The very first speech of humanity that is recorded for us is a man writing poetry about a beautiful woman. And it's emphatic. It begins with the word this, this, this. Look at it. He said, after all that I've been looking at, look at this one. That's that's really the idea behind it. There was excitement when he suddenly saw that. And there were a couple of reasons for that excitement. First of all, she was totally different from all the animals. And so much like him. So there was correspondence and appropriateness. At the same time, she was different enough from him to be exciting. So there was excitement and appropriateness that was a cause of his enthusiastic outburst. Now this relationship is described as a one flesh relationship. What does that involve? Now the most obvious uh, meaning of that one flesh union, or dimensions I should say, is the sexual union. You've got to remember that Adam was naked and so was she, in a perfect environment. So there definitely was a strong sexual dimension to that. And we'll look at this whole area of sexuality as was intended to be uh, next week, in next week's sermon. But it would not be right to limit it to that. The Hebrew word for sexual intercourse is yada, which means knowledge, intimate knowledge. And therefore, the physical union was never something that would stand by itself. It was an expression of a union of two beings in their whole totality of their being. In other words, there would be emotional oneness, not identity. Oneness doesn't mean identity, it means awareness and understanding. At the level of feelings, there'd be intellectual intimacy, at the level of ideas, and above all, spiritual intimacy, which is at the level of my heart and my connection with God. In fact, that spiritual intimacy was central and would spill over into everything. The physical intimacy, as we will learn next week, is an expression of an intimacy that continues to exist at these other three levels. So all of that is wrapped up in the two shall become one flesh. The other thing that we see is that there was no barrier to this. As they were originally created, it said the man and the woman were naked, but not ashamed. Nakedness without shame is is a powerful metaphor of vulnerability without fear. (laughs) Nakedness means vulnerable. They were, first of all, completely comfortable with the way they were made. No problems of self-image. And secondly, totally comfortable with being known just the way they were. No need for masks, no need for cover-up, because no fear, vulnerability was no, had no problem, therefore intimacy had no barriers. Because you see, if two people were to be intimate with each other, level of ideas and feelings and spirit, it would mean that the other person had to be vulnerable. If, if, if the man had to know the wife, and the wife had to know the husband in these three dimensions, it presupposes that they would have to be willing to be open in those three areas. Vulnerability is a necessary prerequisite for intimacy. And there was no shame, no fear. Therefore, there were no barriers to it. And one last observation of this text. The purpose of such intimacy was not an end in itself. Although there would certainly be joy and pleasure in all dimensions of this intimacy. It was not an end in itself. Remember, mission was central. The purpose of this intimacy so that people, husband and wife, would use their understanding of each other to complete each other. This is seen in the use of the word helper that is mentioned twice. When God said there was no helper for Adam, so he said I will make Eve. That was not to imply that the wife is a gopher for the husband, a slave to just do whatever the husband wanted. The word helper as there is used 19 times in the Old Testament. 15 of those 19 times it is used of God as helper. And God certainly isn't the gopher for us. How does God help any of us in any area? And anytime God helps us, it is by giving us something that he has that we don't have strength power wisdom peace we need it god has it he gives it to us he's our helper so god is our helper by completing us by giving us what we don't have so when he said i will make a woman as a helper perfectly suited for him it means adam's got lots of stuff that he needs and she's the only one who's going to give it to him perfectly suited for him and vice versa that helps us to understand that this intimacy is not an end in itself It is so that we become more complete and therefore more fitted and able to accomplish this divine mandate of being God's vice regents together. And so mission is central, but whole person intimacy through fearless vulnerability is a second building block that enables that mission to become central and to be accomplished much better. So intimacy and mission are very closely linked together. (laughs) Just a beautiful illustration. It's my favorite story because it illustrates it perfectly. Husband went home one day, young man, and completely dejected and crestfallen because he was a failure. He had lost his job. He'd been fired from his job. He was surprised when his wife gave an exclamation and said, oh, good. Now you can write the book you've been waiting for. And he's very crestfallen said, and what do you think we're going to use to live for all this time? And to his utter shock, she turned to a cabinet where and she opened the cabinet and took out a huge wad of money. She said, I've always known you were a genius. And I knew that one day you were going to write an amazing book. So I've slowly been putting away a little bit of money from everything that you gave to me for a day such as this. This will last us for one year and you can write a book. Out of her foresight and knowledge came Scarlet Letters by Nathaniel Hawthorne. One of the classics of the American Renaissance. And Hawthorne himself was a poet and a short story novelist. This is knowledge, intimacy, Leading to completion for the purpose of mission. Now most of our marriages aren't going to be dramatic examples like that. But when I think back about our own marriage. You know my spiritual gifts are teaching and knowledge and leadership. Shams are intercession and wisdom and hospitality. My temperament as you all know is introverted. is structured thinker. Hers is a flexible extroverted feeler. And so this tremendous diversity of gifts and temperaments have been used by God for these 35 years to accomplish mission much more effectively than we would have been able to do alone. So that's the purpose. Now you might say, hey, but all those differences, when there are problems, plenty of them. (laughs) Which leads us to the next issue. There is a problem. There was a snake in the garden. So we need to move to Genesis chapter 3. Something gets in the way. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there was a delight to the eyes and here's the key and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of this fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, remember that this expression of being created in the image of God As image bearers. As vice regents. Was to be done in dependence on God. And for the glory of God. Instead in this development. They asserted their volition. To assert independence of God. To want to do it by themselves. Not as vice regents. But we will become regents. We will rule. The way we want to. By determining what is good and what is not good. That was the essence of what the Bible calls sin. And so the first thing that happened, that is recorded for us, is problems in the horizontal dimension. They suddenly realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. Now it was no longer nakedness without shame. Immediately, vulnerability became a problem. And if vulnerability became a problem, there were new barriers to the development of intimacy and new barriers to the completion of mission. This is how independence, the grasping for independence of God screwed up the whole marriage relationship. Not only that, while they didn't know yet because God hadn't confronted them, the experiences of shame were directly related to guilt and having disobedience. They didn't understand those yet because God had to flush them out. Why are you ashamed? Who told you you were naked? Did you do this? But they knew something wasn't right. And each one of them probably reasoned, if something isn't right with me, something isn't right with that person too. So before they will do anything to me, I'm going to protect myself. So self-protection and counter-attack, I'll hurt you before you can hurt me, were all factors that entered into the mixture. So now vulnerability was risky, tremendously risky. Self-protection, cover-up, avoidance are the issues that became dominant. And so intimacy became a problem, self, the process of completion was interfered with, and effectiveness for mission began to go, go way down. By the way, this is the reason why every Rachel turns out to be a Leah. <laughs> because this is God's design for marriage. You see, He's not interested in fostering those romantic notions of finding our soulmate and living happily ever after. Part of God's design in marriage, part of His foundational purposes in marriage in this fallen world where we all are marked by this tendency for in- independence of God and to independently determine goodness, is to flush out this thing, is to show us. That we actually are independent, self-centered creatures. And it happens in many ways. First of all, it's just simply the sheer presence of the other person. In a metaphor I'll never forget from the time I read it, Mike Mason said, imagine waking up one morning and finding a massive tree in the middle of your living room. He said, you have to take that tree into account for everything that you do. That's what marriage does. Another person is simply there all the time. There's no such thing as independence anymore. You have to take that other person into account for everything that you do. Now imagine that the tree has eyes and is looking at you all the time. Now you are also under the watchful scrutiny of a spouse who is looking at you all the time. And even though there may be a beautiful smile on the face, they are evaluating everything that you say and don't say and do and don't do. And judgments are being formed all the time. This is what you left home to get away from, right? (laughs) Right. No, Rachel, Leah. And thirdly, the tree talks and wants to make demands. Feed me, water me. Because he has expectations of you. You see, this is what happens in marriage. They are there, they are evaluating you, and they have expectations of you. None of which feels comfortable. But all of which shows uh, by our reactions to these things, what's really wrong with us. This is not a picture of marriage most people think about. And yet this is absolutely central to our understanding of the picture. And intimacy that was intended to complete now becomes a weapon. Because you see, because you do now know certain things about the other person, you know exactly what buttons to push to get them upset. You know exactly how to get back at them. You know what will hurt them the most, so you know how to get back at them. That which was intended for completion has now become weapons for competition and counterattack, which makes further vulnerability even riskier. <laughs> so there we have the third part. Marriage reveals our sinful self-centeredness, Which of course puts a huge X on that whole person intimacy through fearless vulnerability which interferes with the accomplishing of mission. This is all in the first three chapters of the Bible. The rest of the Bible is a story of one who was not surprised by any of this and that was God. The rest of the Bible from Genesis chapter 4 on is a story of the pursuit of God. And the demonstration of his grace to sinners. Which reached an apex in what we have celebrated in the early part of our worship service today. Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection on the cross for us. And that grace, first of all, comes to us individually. So that we receive grace for our failures in marriage. And then we also receive grace to be able to give grace to our spouses. When they have changed completion into competition and they hurt us. Thereby, once again, slowly making vulnerability safer, less risky, increasing the possibility of intimacy, and therefore increasing effectiveness in the fulfillment of the mission. That's really the rest, the rest of the story of the Bible. So, God adds one more thing. So, here's the fourth and final piece of what we're building today. Ephesians chapter where We come all the way into the New Testament after Jesus' death and the resurrection. The Apostle Paul, one of the early Christian leaders writing to one of the churches, actually a group of churches probably, says this. And he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Just a few observations. Notice how it ends. God's plan hasn't changed. (laughs) Even though we've messed it all up by this grasping for independence and vulnerability has become a problem and intimacy has become a challenge and mission-centeredness has become interfered with. In spite of all of this, God's cent, central purpose hasn't changed. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold to his wife, and the two shall, that one flesh union, representing this whole person intimacy for the purpose of mission, is still God's plan. Nothing has changed. That's the first thing we learn from this day. However, because of these problems that have come up relationally, He adds one other commandment. He said, "Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ." Mutual submission, this whole dimension called submission enters into the picture. And it really is mutual. Both husbands and wives are to submit to one another. However, here's the key thing that I think is often missed in this passage. By the way, there's 101 questions that this passage read. There's at least two sermons that I've given a link for you to so you can explore them in much, much greater depth. Where I just take a couple of sermons to, to just take this thing apart and help us understand and correct a whole lot of misunderstandings in our culture and even within the church on this stuff. But for this morning, precisely because men and women were made different, something else our culture is desperately trying to wipe out, sin affected husbands and wives differently. Therefore, while they are both called to submit to one another, the form that that submission takes is radically different. First of all, he speaks to husbands. If you're wondering why there's so much more on husbands and wives, that's the way it is in the text. A lot more stuff to the husband. In the in the culture that they lived in, Greco, a first century Greco-Roman culture, men had wives to create babies for themselves and they had prostitutes and mistresses to satisfy them sexually. In that context, Paul's commandment to husbands to love your wives is absolutely radical. And he says three things about it. He says, first of all, he said, you love your wives like Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He said, first of all, he loved her sacrificially. He gave himself for her. So it's going to cost husbands to love their wives. Secondly, he said, he did it purposefully. He said, he, Christ gave himself to the church in order that he might present the church holy and blameless to himself. So there was a purpose and that purpose was completing and bringing her to be everything she could be. So the purpose of a sacrificial love of a husband is so that his wife could become everything that God intended her to be. And thirdly, he says, Husbands, love your wives like your own body. For who hated his own body? That's loving carefully. It just reminds us in a manner that you win an argument with your wife, you're in trouble anyway. Because if you win it, you still lose. (laughs) Right? You all know that. There's no such thing as being able to win an argument. If you win it, you lose. So what do you do? (laughs) He says, love them like Christ loved the church. Sacrificially, purposefully, and carefully. Basically, it means, I think, for the husband to say, to be the head of the home, to be the leader, has nothing to do with being king of the castle. Has nothing to do with being boss. These are all things you can naturally do because of your, generally speaking, men are physically stronger. And in many cases, have the, uh, hold the purse strings as well. That has nothing to do with leadership in the Bible. It has, I think, to do with understanding what marriage is all about and saying, I'm going to take the primary responsibility to make my home like this. Yeah, and that can become weary, it can become draining, especially if you at times you feel nobody else is pulling their weight. That's the essence of leadership. That's where the cost comes. And then to say, my wife is my helper. If she's been uniquely given to me, I have to do everything that I can to invite her into that process. So a leader willingly involves the spouse. Says, you've got all kinds of ways. Just, just yesterday morning, in responding to an email that came to me from someone looking for input. I wrote drafted the response, but the first thing I did was send it to Sham. I said, Honey, can you please take a look at this? Would you think this would be wise for me to send it or not? Because I, I trust her wisdom. That's one of the spiritual gifts that God has given to her. I trust her intercession. <clears throat> and so a leader just regularly invites that kind of thing in all the areas where she's better. By the way, it also means and God has called me to make her even better at this. <laughs> so my loving carefully, my loving purposefully involves making her everything that God has made her. And the intimacy will help me to understand where she's gifted, where her challenges are. So in my prayers I can bless, in my conversations I can challenge. And then the command to the wife, simply your form of submission is don't grasp for equality. Follow this kind of leadership. Be involved in this process. Can I say something in Passing. Every marriage where I've seen a grasping for equality, I end up seeing hierarchy. Somebody or other is always on top. Because that's the nature of power. You grasp for equality, you grasping for equality is a power play. And you will end up powerful. Whereas when I've seen husbands and wives to some degree of approximation, because nobody's perfect, live this way, you actually see an amazing equality at work. It's always God's way, right? It's the essence of the mindset of Jesus. The way to up is down. And the way to down is definitely to try and go up. And so this is what this text, I think, is all about. Now, is it easy? Absolutely not. This is the single most important thing, which is why our marriages are failing left, right and center, outside the church and inside the church. This is not a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. That's why he began by saying these two things. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on to say, do all of this out of reverence for Jesus. Those are the two key things that I want to end. You're not going to be able to pull this out without these two things. Without reverence for Jesus and without being filled with the Spirit. Reverence for Jesus is the supreme motivation and being filled with the Spirit is the supreme enabling. We need both motivation and enabling for this. So Let me just quickly point out how these two things work. First of all, why is reverence for Jesus so critical? Gary Thomas asked the question, do you want to be a spouse centered spouse or do you want to be a God centered spouse? <laughs> Reverence for Jesus becomes a driving force in this way. You see, in the same text I, I only I read as far as thirty one. In verse thirty two it says but After saying, therefore, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He said, but I'm actually speaking about Jesus and the church. It has that has to be the most staggering statement in the Bible. The most ironical statement is there was mourning and turned out to be Leah. But the most staggering statement in the Bible is he's talking about the husband and wife becoming one flesh. And he said, but I'm actually talking about Jesus and the church. Next week, we'll talk about this a bit more on the meaning of sexuality. But. What it's saying is that marriage is the supreme illustration that God has chosen to the world of Jesus' love for the church. Therefore, every time a husband and a wife work to drop the risks of vulnerability, increase the likelihood of vulnerability, and therefore increase the level of intimacy, and therefore increase the effectiveness of uh, their mission, and every time they're willing to do that hard work, Why are they doing it? Because Jesus is worth it. I work on my marriage because my marriage is going to tell the world what what Jesus' love for the church is. And that's only going to be possible if you reverence Jesus. That's why all the songs you chose this morning were so beautiful, so appropriate. So reverence for Jesus becomes the primary motivation. It also becomes the primary motivation in another way because today in the New Testament, the mission that we all have is the mission of proclaiming the name of Jesus. Which we will only do. So mission will only be central. If we value Jesus. And if mission is central. Then we will say. I better pursue intimacy. I better overcome. My self-centeredness. Because mission is central. So in these two ways. Reverence for Christ. Become absolutely foundational. Now now the interesting thing. In all of this. Is that when you are. God-centered like this. Marriage then gives you. All of that. Funnily enough, Leah becomes Rachel, you know, or not Rachel. Rachel. Actually, if you read read that story, you know who is buried next to Abraham, not Rachel, Leah. You know where Judah was born, from whom Jesus came? Judah was born to Leah, not to Rachel. God does this amazing. If we will let, if we will not get overcome by the fact that the Rachels we married turned out to be Leah's, and you can substitute the names of equivalent men, women. You need to find your own names for that. As far as the men are concerned, we're exactly in the same situation. You marry us thinking we are one kind of person, and you turn discover we are completely different. But as if we start living like this, God will change, transform each of those people. Because you know, it says Jesus loved the church. What does it say? He says he sacrificially loved the church to present her holy and blameless. To himself, he gets it out. So it's the same way when husbands love their wives like this, and they become holy and radiant. Who's benefiting at the end of it? You know. Uh, you know. I, I got to this point in the message last night. Sham wasn't in there because she needed to stay home for something that we, uh, the furnace had broken down unexpectedly, so somebody was coming to fix it. I just really felt just a deep joy within my heart because of the gift that she is to me now. You know, and it was not mostly because of me, but I don't. Some of it, anyway, attempting to do what Christ told us to do. And I've heard the story before. too. One of the joys I've had in 35 years of ministry here is that no matter what was going on in the church and what was going on in the world, I only had to walk five minutes into a peaceful place. That doesn't mean there were no arguments in the parsonage. There were plenty of arguments. My brother-in-law, Rati, would always say, hey, trouble's brewing in the parsonage, you know. (laughs) But that's because we're just normal people like everybody else. But because of sham, it's primarily been a place of peace in, in the home. So who gains? Who, guys, who gets to gain from all of this? Jesus presented the church to himself. Our wives become holy and radiant and they become gifts to us. God is no man's debtor. You put Jesus first and he says, I'll give you everything. You change that sequence around and you get nothing. That's the trouble. You put Jesus, C.S. Lewis talked about first things first. That's another whole sermon in itself. You put first things first, you get the second thing with it. You put second things first, you lose both. See, that's, that's how marriage works. But, you need the Holy Spirit as the supreme enabler because of the work of the Spirit is to magnify Jesus. That's, why, that's what Jesus said. When the Holy Spirit comes, He will not speak of Himself. He will take of me and speak to you. That's why the prayer, Holy Spirit, please reveal Jesus to me, is a foundational prayer for marriage as it is for mission. That's why show me your glory is the most basic prayer that we have to pray. Because Jesus' glory is revealed to us by the Spirit. And when we see Jesus more, and we get captured by Jesus more, and we love Jesus more, then we want to be ma- have marriages like this, and then mission becomes centered. you see how all the pieces fit together? So, reverence for Jesus becomes a supreme motivation, and, and the Spirit becomes enabling. By the way, the Spirit also enables us in these other ways. Uh, when we blow it, as we will many times, Through the Spirit we come to Jesus and the Spirit mediates the grace of Jesus into our lives so that we receive grace for our own failures. And then those times when our spouses will blow it, which also will happen many times, we again go to God and we receive grace. This time not grace for us, but grace through us to our spouses to forgive them and so grace becomes the foundational building block so there's the last one in there grace motivated by reverence for Christ and empowered by the spirit of God does not end run around the self-centeredness actually I should have put the arrows right through it transforms our self-centeredness so that whole person intimacy through fearless vulnerability increasingly becomes possible and mission becomes central once again so these I think are the four foundational building blocks that work together now in a moment we're going to go to the communion table to have communion together so appropriate again we began with Jesus we're going to come back to jesus this is what he did so that we could have marriages like this so we could accomplish mission but i want to end with two things oh by the way single people don't think you have been left out of this message all those four blocks apply to you mission centered applies as much to you we looked at it last week and you also need intimate relationships with people with married couples and with singles that's also going to reveal your self-centeredness and your selfishness and you're going to need jesus just as much as us. So you there are parallel blocks that work together and hopefully they crisscross the way we talked about them last week. But because we all remember diagrams so much and stories so much better and images so much better than just concepts, I try to put even these four concepts in the form of a diagram. So can you say those four words with me by the way you just need one to remember each of them mission, intimacy, self-centeredness, grace. One more time. Mission, intimacy, Self-centeredness, grace. And you have this whole message in four words. I hope you remember that. But here are two images that were so beautiful. Actually, somebody sent me... It wasn't on a link. I, I, I have a Twitter account. Where I do very few tweets. But every now and then something pops up. on my thing. somebody sent something else and you were mentioned or something like that. And this was a link to a sermon. Some guy was saying, Thank you, Joe Rigney, for two amazing messages on marriage. I thought, okay, I'm preaching on marriage. This thing has popped up on my computer. Let me take a look at it. And it was worth it. There were two magnificent images. The first one is of a home. If the husband is form and frame and foundation of this home, the wife is the warmth and beauty of it. A foundation, frame, roof and walls is not much to look at and you certainly wouldn't want to live there. By the way, try living in a home that doesn't have foundation, frame and walls, nothing there either. But with that foundation, a wife is free to make that building, that house into a true home. If the husband creates the possibility of a home by establishing its roots through his gospel identity, a wife actualizes the home by responding and filling the home with life and light through her gospel identity. She is the warmth of fire. He keeps the warmth inside. He keeps the rain out of the living room. She makes the living room worth living in. You know, and, and that's when, Shan last night, I was so overwhelmed with emotion. Because that's what she's done for our home. I've tried to build the foundation, but she's built it into a beautiful, warm, and loving place. And then this one is beautiful. If there's anything that gets to the distortion of the Ephesians 5 passage on loving and submitting, this one is it. Not the dance. It's the dance. Vidya, where are you? So appropriate that you would choose a dance, right? Not knowing that this is going to converge. There's a single person dancing with Jesus. God puts sermons together and services together so amazingly, doesn't he? Not the awkwardness of a junior high dance. Not the sad desperation and craving of a rave at a club in uptown wherever Uptown was, you know. An elegant dance, a ballroom dance on a shining floor with chandeliers overhead. Maybe a waltz with twirls and pauses and smooth movements. Sometimes swift and sometimes slow, but always in sync. Always together, always graceful. Marriage is that dance. In the dance, the husband leads the way. His hand gently, almost imperceptibly moves the couple around the room. He's guiding, he's leading, he's anticipating... And he's doing so, and I love this sentence. And he's doing so in such a way that the most of his influence will be entirely unnoticed, and for the express purpose that no one will be watching him and all eyes will be on his bride. What an amazing picture of leadership! I'll lead, you follow, but everyone will look at you, not at me. His goal in the dance is to honor her, to showcase her, and to allow her to flourish. The fact that she's actively responding to him means that she initiates some of the movements in the dance. He presses her hand and she moves her leg. In other words, the fact that he is the lead partner doesn't mean that she must wait on him to do everything or initiate everything. She ought to feel free to initiate conversations, give her own ideas, express her own opinions, all in the context of his overall leadership. I just trust these two pictures will just help you uh, and sustain you. Uh, to, along with the reverence for Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to build marriage according to this uh, diagram. My blessing for you is abundant grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. May that grace be poured upon you just when you need it. Go in Jesus' name.